Hi, welcome to More Christ. This is a channel dedicated to Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox alike. Today I'm joined once again by Bishop Will Williman. William H. Williman is an American theologian and a bishop in the United Methodist Church, retired now, who for eight years served at the North Alabama Conference. He's seen by many as one of the America's premier and most influential preachers. Today I'd like, I look forward to speaking with Will about a seemingly prodigious 2020 and just some of the work that he's been up to. So uh, if we might begin then with the gospel for the person who has everything. Um, can you tell us a bit about that, Will, and um, the background of the book and what makes it distinct from others out there? Well, the, uh, the book began out of my first, in my first parish, my first attempt to be a preacher uh, over a sustained period of time. And um, I realized that I sort of went after preaching and pastoring uh, the way I had received it and been taught. And that was uh, ministries about responding to people's needs. Uh, preaching is where one identifies a need, and then you show how the gospel is response to that need. Um, trouble was, I, I was serving a predominantly white, middle-class congregation, and uh, my folks had the kind of human uh, challenges that anybody has, except, well, it occurred to me, one, that I'm not sure the gospel, I'm not sure Jesus is that focused on, like, ordinary human challenges. Um, rather, he seems more interested in the challenges that come our way from being his disciples. Uh, and so, so that was one issue, and that was the needs that they presented as their greatest needs, what maybe needs the gospel is all that interested in. Uh, two, it, uh, my people didn't seem to be all that needy. Uh, they, uh, and I grew increasingly uncomfortable with sort of saying, uh, you know, where do you hurt? Oh, okay, well, the gospel is response to that. Or if someone said, well, I think I'm doing okay. I said, oh, no, 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 you're not. You're, uh, you haven't been properly diagnosed by me. Uh, you're more messed up than you think you are. And let me explain to you the ways you're messed up. Now, Jesus can fix that. Well, I, I became uninterested in that. And then about that time, I ran across a statement by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his letters when he talks about, um, uh, okay, the gospel is for the wretched of the earth. It is for those in need. But what do we do about people that don't, seem to have needs, though desperate need. They're, they're fairly confident. They're fairly privileged and gifted. What about, and he called them the strong, what do we do about those people? So out of those ruminations came this book, my first church book, really. Hmm. Thank you for that, Will. And um, let me just take a quote from the book, and we can talk about some of those themes you mentioned somewhere um, so secure content competent reasonably happy and fulfilled such persons of strength they go their own way without any apparent discomfort at having missed the benefits of the Christian faith what do you say to the person then who says through his or her neglect of the faith thanks but I don't need it and um, so that's strength that you talk about um, such persons of strength don't feel the same level of need, arguably then, as the downcast, the outcast, the brokenhearted. Why uh, is it important then 
to remember the church's message to the wretched and sad, but that must not exclude the strong and the joyous. And why is it so essential to reach out to those persons as well? Well, I mean, one thing is Jesus reached out to them. I think, you know, the most notable example everybody thinks about is on his way to the cross, he goes through Jericho. He fraternizes with no one in Jericho except the richest, worst person in town who's not only a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. He's short, but he's really big on being a tax collector. And... Um, Zacchaeus. And um, when he does, and Zacchaeus has the good sense to realize that Jesus coming to his house evokes a response. And his response is economic, material. Hey, half of everything I've got, I'll give away to the poor. And, uh, and then Jesus says something interesting. Today, salvation has come to this house. And um, that says to me that sometimes we presented salvation is, uh, okay, you got a problem, recognize your problem. Now, Jesus is the answer to your problem. Uh, well, it, as I see it, Zacchaeus, for instance, to pursue that, you know, didn't know he had a problem until he met Jesus. And in a sense, maybe his problems were not what he thought they were. And that's not a bad salvation, a bad definition of salvation. Salvation is whenever Jesus shows up with you. It, it's whenever he invites himself to your table. That's salvation. And when Jesus comes, uh, Jesus comes with an assignment. In fact, if I could sum up, I, I don't think I did this clearly in the book, because uh, I was young, I was new, um, but um, I would say the book theologically is wrestling with the issue of the damage we've done when we detach salvation in Jesus Christ from vocation by Jesus Christ. In fact, I think I could argue that in the Christian faith, uh, salvation, as it was for Zacchaeus, is always a vocation. It is, it is not simply to say, hey, I've saved you from your sins. Just have a good time until you die, and then you'll get to be with me in heaven. Uh, salvation is, uh, hey, you, I got a job for you to do. Uh, uh, I'm getting ready to transform the world into the kingdom of God to get back what belongs to me. Hey, and guess who's going to help me do that? And in a sense, to be called by Jesus is to be given something to do with your life. Your life is given significance it would not have had without Jesus. And so vocation is salvation. Salvation is vocation. And bad things happen when we separate those two. So maybe the book was an attempt to get those two theological concepts together. Yeah, marvelous. I think... Um in line with what you said, especially mentioning Bonhoeffer, it um, goes beyond what he calls cheap grace. Is that fair? Isn't that what he, he uh, thought? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's admiring, well, as Kierkegaard is kind of admiring Jesus without actually following him. <laughs> and Kierkegaard noted, 
Jesus never said, admire me. He said, follow me. And Bonhoeffer works that so well, which I think his comment about the strong was to say, okay, um, uh, it's not apparent that the strong, self-sufficient, gifted person has a bunch of needs Jesus can meet. But, but how is that person the way Jesus meets his needs for the salvation of the world through that person? And how can that person, uh, particularly you know, in Western culture, affluence is often a sign of, uh, of superficiality, of, of a life not worth having. And I'm not only thinking about our president at this moment. Uh, but but any affluence, my affluence. Well, Jesus comes along and gives us something interesting to do with our gifts, uh, with our, and you can immediately think of parables Jesus told where he says, uh, uh, the kingdom of God is like a rich man who gives everything he's got to his servants and then says, hey, I'm out of here. Well, the rich man returns and says, and ask a simple but profoundly judgmental question, hey, what have you done with what I've given you? Well, to be connected to Jesus is to participate in that dynamic too. Excellent, thank you, Will. I think um, contrast here might serve for some clarity. So how and why do you think that the, um, this distinct Christian message in its inclusive and universal character differs so starkly from more competitive worldviews and pseudo-religions, some of which might actually even encourage resentment between different classes, whatever way oh. they so Marxism or uh, honor-shame yeah. societies or consumerism? Um, you know, Marxism uh, makes a big deal out of uh, the oppressed and uh, uh, how that uh, the, the point is, you know, not to analyze the world is to change it. And how do you do that? Well, you do that with the oppressed, of course. Ironically, Marxism <laughs> tend to be a very elitist uh, worldview and philosophy uh, derived by the elite uh, and uh, had its greatest success among the elites, the uh, cultural, well, well uh, how is Christianity different? I think, you know, first of all, I really believe it important to say something that is kind of against about 90% of the sermons that I hear and that many that I preach, and that is Christianity is not first about meeting human need. It, first of all, this is Karl Barth, an announcement. It's also Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's an announcement about who God is and what God is up to. Hey, people, the kingdom of God is coming. Get on board with it. And um, I think we have perverted that uh, announcement into, uh, hey, what would you, what do you really need in your life? Uh, uh, oh, okay, oh, yeah, yeah. Jesus can deliver that. Um, well, maybe the word of the church ought to be, what is your greatest need in your life? Okay, well, Jesus doesn't give a rip about that, all right? Um, and, uh, but, but and, and he has come among us. So I, I hadn't thought about it. I, I do think most, many philosophies that compete with Christianity 
They're kind of like, what are you searching for in your life? What are you looking for? Well, Chris, nobody was looking for Jesus, okay? <laughs> you know, we were, we were wanting a Messiah, but we wanted a Messiah on our terms. We didn't want a Jew from Nazareth who was crucified and then rose unexpectedly. Uh, no, Jesus is about God looking for us. It's about God showing up. Uh, I teach a class, Introduction to Ordained Leadership, and I showed in the first class a, a painting by uh, Duccio, Duccio de Bonasigna, out of his Maestà in Siena, early Italian Renaissance. And it's a panel of Jesus standing on the shore, reaching out to these two guys in a boat. And these two guys are not doing anything theological. They're busy uh, hauling in their nets with fish. And, uh, and one of them, Peter, I presume, is sitting there, me? Are you calling to me? And uh, Jesus is reaching out to them. They're not reaching out to Jesus. They're looking for fish. And uh, I said to the students, that encapsulates the gospel. And the gospel is not simply Jesus doing something about my sins so that when I die, I'll get my ticket to eternity. Jesus is about saying, hey, eternity starts now. And it starts the moment that I say, you, follow me. I got, I got work for you to do. Excellent. Then, um, so I guess, tactically speaking, how do we communicate with the strong and um, ensure that they're moved to conversion and repentance, especially in an age of um, what's been called expressive individualism that Charles Taylor talks about? Mm. Charles Freeman has written a book about an excellent book about this recently. So um, it seems to be more that they perceive what it means to be human more in line with, say, Nietzsche and this notion of Superman than what Jesus calls us to. And yeah. that's how you address these kind of issues in chapters three and four in the book. Good connection I'm hearing there. I first heard the term expressive individualism from George Lindbeck's uh, book, Nature of Doctrine. But I, it, I think Lindbeck says, in a sense, I hear him say, we're all uh, expressive individualists now, uh, not only liberal Christians, but also conservative Christians who, who see religion as self-expression. Uh, the person who says, you know, I'm searching for a faith that really works for me. No, um, the gospel says, one, you ain't searching for God, God is searching for you. Uh, two, uh, Christianity's claim is not that this will really work for you. Christianity's claim is this will really work on you. <laughs> Come to me and I promise you'll get born again. You will be re renovated. You will live a different life than the one your parents raised you to live. That's what Jesus does. Uh, and I think if, if you listen to a lot of preaching now, it's experiential expressivist, and the preacher will say things like, uh, have you ever thought that, have you ever wondered, uh, have you ever wanted to, and then the preacher uh, goes rummaging around in scripture and says, oh, 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 scripture cares about what you're caring about and all, and, and here's the answer to that. I, I say, Preaching is not so much expressive of who I am, it's formative of me. And it, it's working on me 
And uh, uh, there are many of us who find that Jesus is not the solution to our problems. In fact, Jesus is the cause of many of our problems, problems we wouldn't have had before we met Jesus. And so it's kind of false advertising. I remember William Stone Coffin, who was kind of a mentor for me in my student days, uh, musing, uh, how the heck, he said in his Brooklyn accent, how the heck, uh, if you notice, Mark, I don't have an accent. <laughs> you have an accent, I don't have one. But I remember William Stone Coffin saying, how, how the heck do you uh, attract people to Christ on the basis of their selfishness, their self-concern, and their self-centeredness, and then somehow bait and switch with Jesus and say, ooh, now let me introduce you to a man who says, you want to live? Die. You want to receive? Give. Uh, how, how do you do that? Uh, well, I think it is you don't. And that's why I say many of the worst mistakes a church makes theologically are, are due to evangelism, where I ask you, what do you really, really want? And then I say, oh, Jesus can get give. I remember talking, I was a college chaplain for 20 years, you know, and I asked a student, uh, what, what are you searching for, would you say, uh, in this important time in your life? And he said, well, frankly, I'm searching for a woman I can get laid with next weekend. And I said, oh, okay, good. Thank you for your candor. Uh, thank you. And uh, uh, let me just reassure you, I got nothing to say on that project, and Jesus Christ will be of zero help to you in that endeavor. Uh, I think we need to be reminded that Jesus Christ is here as the advent of God's kingdom. So, well... Yeah, excellent. Um, you've mentioned there that even within the church, a lot of us or all of us are expressive individualists. So that's something that unites rich and poor and every kind of social strata alike. Um, what are some of the dis distinct challenges that those different groups uh, uh, suffer and uh, offer to us in sharing the gospel? That makes sense. Uh, what challenges do we face in speaking the gospel to the strong, as Bonhoeffer meant, use that? I, well, I think one thing is that uh, because they can solve so many of their problems with their checkbook um, or their credit card, um, they, they kind of get deluded into thinking that they're competent to solve all their problems. Another thing is that the world is so resourceful and relentless in presenting to them various life projects. Uh, they get caught up in those projects and which are diametrically opposed to Jesus project. Another problem is, I, I don't know about Ireland, but uh, in America, it, there's a sense in which we're all living in gated communities now. Uh, we're all hunkered down with people who look like us and who think like us politically, et cetera. Uh, 
and there, what do you do with a, a Lord who says, you know, who answers, who is my neighbor? <laughs> my neighbor is both the man dying in the ditch and the despised Samaritan. Uh, and Jesus is just inherently does not recognize borders, boundaries. He is utterly unimpressed by the way we designate ourselves as male, female, white, black, uh, Irish, American. Uh, so the, uh, yeah, it, it's, I think, I, I, I'd say, you know, our greatest probably theological problem is in my church is we can't tell the difference between being a thinking, sensitive, caring American and being a Christian. We've somehow gotten confused that the kingdom of God is the USA. And um, that, so preachers have to get in there and be more clear about those distinctives. I, I see this going on in Paul's letters where he, here's a time when the church is hanging on by its fingernails fighting for its very survival. And you'd think Paul would say, okay, what can I do not to offend these Greco-Roman types? Uh, no, he just, he, he spends his whole letter saying, this is not of Christ, okay? I know in your former lives, this was okay. It was okay to sleep with your mother if you wanted to. And I, well, hey, Jesus is different. Uh, should we eat food offered to idols or not? Uh, well, you can see Paul wrestling with that about, well, good question, because you got to be careful. Um, you know, the world is out to get your children, so you got to be careful with the world. But hey, hey, go ahead and eat food offered idols. That means nothing. But then Paul catches himself and he says, but now remember, um, you got to be concerned about the body of Christ, namely your brothers and sisters uh, in the church. And so if you have brothers and sisters that have a problem with that, don't eat food offered idols because you, you don't want to make being Christian any more difficult than it already is uh, for these brothers. And, well, so I, I think uh, I want to say to the strong, by the way, I'm preaching Christ, not because I think this will make your life better, because I don't know if it will. It may make your life very difficult. Um, but I'm preaching Christ because he just happens to be the truth about God, about what God's up to. And so therefore we preach that. And, and I don't know, I think that's a very un-American kind of thing because generally we are utilitarian people who come to every person, every experience saying, hey, what can I get out of this? Uh, what will this do for me? How will this help me? And I think Jesus is about, hey, here's how you can help me. Uh, uh, dying, you will live. Uh, come with me. And there's a cross that fits your back just fine. <laughs> well, it, at least you can't accuse him of false advertising. Yep. Thank you for that. That's most clarifying, Well, And um, I think... In line with that, there's also this kind of sentimental and mushy view of love, which is in contrast with what Christ actually offers. So just moving on to the next part of the book, what do you mean then when you speak of worship, which takes God's strong love seriously? 
And um, what are some of the distinct features of our true and loving God's strong love that are unparalleled in hmm. mankind without God in any of the worlds, like say these secularist philosophies, you mentioned utilitarianism there or other religions even, which have a different conception of God and don't have this central emphasis on love that um, we have in Christ. Yeah, I like your, your emphasis on love uh, and worship. Uh, uh, we love in worship because he first loved us. Uh, our love, worship is always, Christian worship is responsive. It's something has happened. Therefore, we are busy responding to what's happened. And uh, I'd worry about anybody who says, I just love Karl Marx. Mm -hmm. I, I love uh, the, the, the uh, Marxist manifesto uh, the communist man, well, you know, you'd have to worry about somebody like that. Uh, Jesus Christ is a person, and he comes to us with love, and he commands us to love, which is a weird definition of love by our standards. Um, and I think, you know, why do we dress up? Why do we come down to a building an inconvenient hour of the week? Uh, why do we love the poor? Uh, why do we speak truth to power? It's due to love. Uh, we love because he first loved us. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been in love, Mark. Uh, if you haven't, I'm not a good enough poet to uh, describe it for you. But uh, if, uh, if you've ever been in love, you know, you do all kind of weird stuff for the person you love. I mean, you, you'll go to football games, even though you're philosophically opposed to the violence of football. You, you will sit through an opera, you know. Well, Christians kind of do the same thing. And we do it because, amazingly, God is not content just to love the world. But God also says, love me back. Uh, uh, and and uh, I will be your God. You will be my people. And uh, why did God choose Israel? God says Deuteronomy. Because I loved Israel, <laughs> you know. Uh, it, and anyway, that kind of gratuitous, th that's love. And um, therefore, Christians are kind of justified in saying to people, uh, you know, if you're in love with someone, uh, you often want to share that someone with your friends to say, uh, oh, I just wish you could, could know him like I know him. Or, and uh, uh, well, Christians, that's kind of evangelism where Christians say, uh, you have a right to know the truth about who God is. You could be wrong in your thoughts about who God is. Uh, let us tell you about the God who has come to us in Jesus Christ let us try to entice you into that. And as Thomas Aquinas said, um, we imitate whom we adore. Therefore, if you want to get better people, if you want to get Christian ethics, maybe the source of that is to look for ways people can be more adoring of this one who has reached out to them and they get changed in the process. Yeah, excellent. That uh, is in line with James K. Smith's You Are What You Love, too, which mm. music to my ears. 
but that was a great book and um, kind yeah. of ties together the emphasis on worship and love and the practical consequences of our Christian life, which I think bypasses a lot of people. Yeah. I think uh, also Tim Keller. You know, I've, I've been, maybe this is a North American problem, but I've been confronted with people who say, you know, I, I just don't see the point of worship. I, I'm glad to do service in the church, uh, good for others and all, but, you know, sitting around and uh, singing and all, and uh, I've thought it, it's kind of like, uh, again, forgive me for going back to uh, being in love. And, uh, but uh, the, uh, you know, when you're in love, you do a lot of stupid stuff. I mean, love is blind and stupid. And <laughs> you write poetry to the one you love, even though you're not a great poet. You find yourself singing songs, even though you're not great at singing. Well, that's that's kind of like Christians. Uh, we We do that same kind of stuff, too. Looks silly to the outsider who's not in love, and it kind of makes sense only when you're in love. And um, uh, so uh, I think worship, Christian worship is a, is a way of being in love with the God who has uh, loved us. Excellent. I think um, that really brings the subjective and the objective together. And uh, I was just going to say there that Tim Keller speaks about this, that people might think it's weird. Like, why does God think that mm -hmm. I want your praise, but they're looking at it the wrong way? It's like you, whenever you hear a wonderful piece of music, say from Mozart or someone, you're like, wow, that is, that's beautiful. You want to say the th same thing about God because that's what he objectively is. I think yeah. That helped me understand it and maybe well, other people too. <laughs> well, again, uh, you know, we really must have some time on the podcast to talk about your personal life. Uh, but uh, when you're in love with somebody, you like to hear them say, you, you desperately need to hear them say, I love you. <laughs> and uh, there's an episode on Seinfeld when they say, you know, don't ever put that I love you out there. <laughs> they said, that's the worst silence in the world to throw it out there and then not get nothing back. Oh, that's kind of an analogy maybe about uh, our relationship with God that, uh, and, and, you know, uh, when Jesus makes statements like, I'll tell you, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, uh, is part of me. It's, it's those who do what I say, not only those who have the right words. That's a kind of statement that you could imagine lovers saying to one another. And, uh, I do wonder, you mentioned uh, Tim Keller and Lord, nobody loves the thinking about the Christian faith more than Tim Keller uh, and, and does it as well. But um, sometimes I think in Protestantism particularly, we've done a uh, disservice to the gospel by over-rationalizing our worship. And uh, I go into these hip young new churches and they say, now we don't want, we don't, we don't need, we don't do a sermon anymore. We, we do teaching. And um, they'll expect about a 45 minute teaching from you. And I say, this 30 something crowd wants to hear from some old guy like me, 45 <laughs> minutes. Come on. I, I bet they don't listen to their parents. And um, I, I think we make it too cerebral. 
and it it's fair to talk about you know being in love and that uh and and kind of apologetics where you argue you try to argue rationally people into the faith i just don't think much of that project i, I guess because i've met so many people who will I think you become Christian before you think about it, generally. Once you become Christian, all that thinking kind of falls into place and makes sense that it didn't before. And that it's one thing I love about being in a university chapel and preaching and having these very smart people come out and, uh, and they'd be crying and they'd be very embarrassed and they wouldn't know why they were crying. And then they would say, I, I just don't know. What happened to me? I, I, I'm not like this. And uh, I'll say, oh, that Holy Spirit got in this place and did it again. And, and then I go into my thing. Have you ever been in love with someone? Because this is kind of, yeah. Excellent. Um, I think too, in line with what you said there, Christ's message of um, by their fruits, fruits, you shall know them. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about that because I want to ask what um, then ethics or the moral life, as it would have been traditionally called, can and should arise out of this response to God's love. How, how does that, I guess, yeah. change, change us and form us? And I do think it's particularly important for people who have been given lots of stuff, lots of gifts, uh, resources, very important for us to hear Jesus say, what have you done with what you've been given? And to, uh, what are your fruits? Uh, Jesus told some tough stories about unfruitful fig trees and, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, that, that story where Jesus walks by a fig tree and um, there were no figs on it because it wasn't the season for figs and Jesus curses it and it dies because <laughs> it has no figs. <laughs> and, and I mean, he's, he's really big on fruit by your, their fruits. You should know them. And, um, uh, uh, why is Christ not returned, uh, sooner? Uh, why are we still waiting? Why are we still given time? Well, he told a story about, uh, an unproductive fig tree. And the master says, cut it down. And the little servant says, oh, let me put some dung on it. Let me put some manure on it. Uh, and, and maybe that'll do it. Uh, you know, maybe that's a conversation within the heart of the Trinity in which saying, hey, I believe with a little more time, they'll be more fruitful. I, I really believe that. And, um, uh, Fruitfulness is, uh, you know, you think of John the Baptist and people come out to be baptized and what do we got to do? Well, if you got two coats, give away one. Uh, if you're a soldier, be content with your wages, etc. cetera. Uh, that, that this is kind of later John the Baptist in prison says, are you the Messiah or somebody else? We look for somebody else. And Jesus says, you go tell John to look at the fruit. Uh, the poor have good news preached to them. Uh, the dead are raised. Uh, so um, 
I think, again, coming to Jesus gives us something interesting to do with what's been given to us, including our lives. And one of the joys, John Wesley, for instance, uh, you know, uh, a friend of mine, Dick Heitzerider, who knows stuff about John Wesley that the Lord has forgotten, uh, Dick Heitzerider was telling me that there were more rich people in John Wesley's societies in London than the percentage of rich people in the London population in general. And I said, wait a minute. No, there was no Methodist meeting house built in the richest boroughs of London. He said, I know that, but I'm telling you, when you look at the roles, and Dick has actually spent years looking at the roles of the Methodist societies in London, uh, they had a higher percentage of rich people in the societies than in the culture in general. And he said, Wesley felt a sacred responsibility to stick it to the rich and to get, and said, when Wesley's movement needed money, he would go door to door in the richest areas of London and asking people, give me a hundred pounds to pay. And the person would say, I don't know, I have to think about it. And Wesley said, no, you won't, because I've just told you what God wants you to do. Uh, give me the money. And uh, if they would refuse, Wesley would say, oh, how many put their hand to the plow and then they look back so sad, and would leave. And on his way out, he would say, anytime you'd like to serve Jesus more faithfully, you know where I am. <laughs> so, uh, and for some reason, like the Countess of Huntington, uh, Wesley attracted rich people who joined his societies that were full of poor people and, and found their Christ. And Wesley would sometimes say, don't be surprised if, if you want to be with Christ, you better go where he is, okay? And naturally, you found your way here. And so fruit is seen as a, a sign of, of spiritual vitality. And uh, just like uh, as a bishop, uh, I had half of my 600 churches had not made a new disciple for Jesus in the past two years. Are those churches? Mm, you know, I'm sure they have a wonderful time together on Sunday morning and all, but we need to see some fruit there. <laughs> mm. And I think tied to this, uh, also, I want to ask you about the renewal of interest in Christ as a great philosopher, one, and um, also one who proffers uh, virtue ethic as well as what's traditionally called deontological ethics, if we want to use the philosophical speak. So I wondered if you want to speak to that at all. And um, I think maybe to clarify in case anybody thinks that we're, we're con we may contradict ourselves, that uh, if we do see Christ as offering the virtue ethic, that would be in the realm of joy rather than pleasure, which I think uh, goes along with what you said. So just because mm -hmm. um, externally and you might not receive a more pleasurable life, you're still going to receive joy from Christ. Is that a fair mm -hmm. distinction? And would you like to yeah, yeah, I think joy, Christian joy, though, is is often kind of is very much different than maybe what passes for joy in the world. And uh, uh, you know, a while back, I went back and looked up joy. Uh, 
in a concordance in the New Testament. And it is, you know, the 72 return with joy. <laughs> and they say, it works. <laughs> and uh, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall uh, from heaven. And they say, we have no idea what that means, but uh, great. Uh, uh, and I think maybe a sickness of our age is finding joy in the wrong places. Uh, 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 I, had a, I knew a man in my church who had problems with fidelity in his marriage, being faithful to his marriage vows. And then he went through a rather dramatic, impressive change uh, spiritually, morally. Anyway, later he said to me, uh, you know, fidelity makes you happy. <laughs> he said, it's, it's just, I didn't know I was this good a person <laughs> till I started obeying. And, uh, and I've enjoyed obeying. And it, it's kind of me now. And I thought it was a beautiful illustration of what ethics can mean uh, toward a joyful life. Um, the deontological, I'm not sure. Uh, deontological meaning, define that for me, and then I can. Yeah, um, from what I recall, in so I've just ta taught a little bit of philosophy mm -hmm. in the past, and um, it seems to be more to do with the rules. So I guess what I would yeah. say is the ontological is the way the Ten Commandments are right. prescribed, but they're also virtue. Or a life of virtues, which yeah, I think uh, yeah. is important. I, I love, uh, you mentioned the Ten Commandments, you know, and the Ten Commandments, uh, uh, remember, you know, you got to put them in the context of Exodus, and uh, uh, Moses goes to uh, Pharaoh and says, uh, God says, let my people go. Uh, why? Because God is a liberationist. God, <laughs> let my people go so they can worship me. Uh, out in the desert. And the Pharaoh says, hey, if you want to worship, I'll send down one of my court chaplains uh, from the established church and um, uh, can do a nice service down in the ghetto, but you'll be back at work on Monday. Well, there are negotiations and plagues and everything. Finally, Pharaoh says, get the hell out of here. I never want to see you again. So they get out in the wilderness. And it's been so long since anybody's worshiped the true and living God. They forgot how. So Moses says, let me go up on Sinai. So he goes up on Sinai and says to God, okay, are you in the high church worship or do you like praise courses? Or, And uh, God says, okay, write this down. Uh, I paid for you people. Uh, you'll not have any other gods messing with you but me. Uh, two, don't have sex with other people's spouses. Don't covet what I've given other people, et cetera, et cetera. Moses says, hey, this doesn't sound like liturgy to me. And Yahweh says, in effect, okay, there are other gods that like the drums and the timpani and everything. Hey, I'm into righteousness. Uh, I want everybody to be a priest. I want everybody holy. And um, I think that's kind of at the heart of, of Christian worship that we, we love because God loved us. And in doing so, that our, we don't recognize much of a line between worship and ethics. Uh, it's all ontological. It's all part of our being. And uh, again, uh, we imitate whom we adore.
And so a good way to have better ethics is to be more adoring. Or as Luther put it, you don't get apples from a thorn bush. You get apples from an apple tree. You get good works from good people. Yeah, thank you. Um, later in the book, then, you helpfully refocus our attention towards the, the church as a place of continual growth and widening responsibility in line with what we're saying. So why is it this essential to a life um, lived to the full and especially important amidst our age of, say, my rights that people talk about or my choice and um, what seems mm. to be a voluntarist move of the will. And David Bally Hart talks about this, um, describes the will, the will moving from nothing to nothing, whereas Christ seems to offer us this order in line with what you're saying about the Ten Commandments and mm -hmm. so forth for a life well lived. Would you like to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, um, uh, rights language, uh, choice language uh, it does not come out of scripture. It, it, as I understand it, comes out of uh, the European Enlightenment. Uh, it is part of and parcel of constitutional democracy, yeah, yeah, uh, where something was invented in the 18th century called rights, human rights. Um, I just don't think the Bible is that, I, I think scripture is unimpressed with what we're born with, like the Declaration of Independence when uh, we broke away from uh, English tyranny. Um, uh, you know, we say uh, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, these are inalienable rights that's Thomas Jefferson being enlightenment. That's not scripture. Uh, I think scripture says uh, you're not born knowing who God is. Therefore, you're not born knowing what reality is. Uh, that's that's got to come to use a gift, revelation gift. Uh, therefore, the rights language. I, I could. It's done a lot of good work in. Uh, Western constitutional democracies, but I think maybe our generation, we can perceive the bad work it does. I mean, for instance, in our culture, there ain't much gratitude, because why be grateful if it's your inalienable, innate right? Uh, another problem is, I tell this to uh, seminarians, uh, you can't go out there saying, I'm in ministry to meet people's needs. That That's a good way to be in ministry if you're in Honduras or Haiti, not if you're in North Carolina, uh, where uh, my desires get jacked up to the level of needs and needs get further elevated to the level of uh, rights. I want it, uh, therefore it's my right to have it kind of thing. Uh, and therefore a lot of clergy look worn out because they're busy running errands for a bunch of selfish people all day long, uh, that, that being a Christian is about having needs worth having. Uh, and therefore, we don't talk about rights, we talk about obedience. And um, choice, freedom of choice, you know, ask Mary. Mary, how did you decide to get involved in the salvation of the world? Uh, how did you think that through? Uh, 
you know, she said, well, a man in white came. I thought he was a gynecologist. Turned out he was an angel. And uh, I, I have no idea where this thing is going, but yes. Uh, well, uh, uh, Saul, how did you decide to become a follower of Jesus? You know, I got knocked down, blinded uh, on the Damascus Road. I don't remember having a lot of uh, choice. So I, I keep saying like, you know, the, the important thing is not that we've chosen Jesus. The astounding thing is that he chose us. That's the wonder. And so my choice, as Luther said, my yes to God is always a modest yes. It's just a little quiet yes about yes, I accept reality. Yes, uh, I accept that you are God. Uh, and it, it's like that of Mary. Uh, so, I, I, and I think part of the job of being theologians today, being pastors, is to watch our language. You know, we got a discussion, right to life on the one hand, freedom of choice on the other. I just think Christians have got problems with that. We just don't recognize life is a gift of God, not a right. And um, uh, your freedom of choice is not as interesting as God. So um, it, it means that maybe that's one thing you can think of. That's who preachers are. We care for the language. And we say to people things like, I I'm sorry, you can't really say that in that way as a Christian. The scripture won't let you do that properly. It will. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you, Will. I think, um, so some Christians and Rabbi Jonathan Sachs would talk about rights. Okay, there is that element that comes from this scripture that um, has mm -hmm. laid the foundation for rights, but it's within a greater milieu and story that also calls for responsibilities. And if we put more emphasis on responsibility and how we serve one another in love, then that would be a lot. Uh, yeah. I, I do. I know with Rabbi Sachs, he, 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 he works the Jewish notion of covenant and all. I, I just, I personally don't understand how you use that kind of language, covenant and all, or, or responsibility. Like, why should I feel responsibility if I'm not responding to anything? I mean, it, it seems like God, uh, I just think Nietzsche had it right. Uh, you can't get Christian worship. You can't get Christian ethics uh, without a Christian God. I mean, if, if, if God is dead, then all of that is gone and it's just will to power and struggle. And I think like, and, and people will talk about, now, now what is really a right? Is this a right? Is that a right? And rights entail responsibility, and et cetera. I just think at the end of the day, maybe we shouldn't spend, we're in the church, spend much time talking about rights. Sometimes talk about rights is to say, I know you don't believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. I know you don't believe that, but you do believe in justice, don't you? Uh, so let's talk about justice. I just don't think Jesus lets us talk about justice that easily. But what do you do with a savior who, who he didn't come saying, I need you to work justice. He said, love one another. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah, excellent. Thank you for that. Well, I think that's, I think you're correct about that. Um, I do think you need 
the God's revelation to be true for in order to actually accept that notion of a every human being having inalienable worth it doesn't make sense in a purely materialist a naturalist universe that yeah a random chance that makes no sense to me either i think if the, you do accept those presuppositions then you're right that you would go down the more um, nietzschean road and i think maybe that's part of the the, the logic for things like abortion that um, it's your will and there is no emphasis on responsibilities then they don't look to the future and think about the story mm-hmm. or um, other people if, if that makes sense they don't see, perceive themselves as creatures mm-hmm. of communion or um, yeah it doesn't yeah, make I, sense like a pro-life ethic if you were a secularist but that yeah would... I, I don't I, you know and I know that's a prejudiced Christian comment but it's kind of the only type of comment you'd expect Christians to make. <laughs> and I, I think we ought to be more prejudiced towards, prejudged toward, uh, and and to say to people who are not Christian, as we have these discussions now, I bet what I say is going to seem kind of weird to you. There may be stuff you want to understand. I'd be glad to do my best to explain it as I can. But uh, the notion that we can, like, take our Christian take on reality and, and kind of transpose that into some meta narrative of, uh, you know, let's not talk about Jesus. Let's talk about justice because we can all agree on justice, can't we? Well, no, we can't agree. And in fact, in these discussions of justice, by the time people finish describing what justice has to be, I'm thinking of John Rawls and all, uh, I think maybe justice is a stupid concept. I mean, if if you got to go through all that and say, it's not that, it's not that, it's this, uh, then why is it so stupid if I talk about love? Or if I make a claim, Jesus Christ enables me to live in the world with something better even than justice. Uh, well, I ought to have to make that good. And, uh, uh, I, and I, again, I do think that we're living in a time where we're having the joy, and who does this better than David Bentley Hart, uh, the joy of, of kind of saying, wow, Christians are strange. Uh, we're not like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, we think about this stuff weird. Uh, in the eyes of, it's not weird, it's, it's a reality that other people don't know or are avoiding, but uh, a, a kind of renewed, self-confident. For instance, I, I think when Christians no longer are responsible for running Ireland, that will be a good thing. When Christians no longer feel like, oh, well, we've got this Christian country and the church is very powerful and we have a responsibility to make Ireland worth living in, I think it will be good so we can then go back to trying to be the church and say, uh, you know, Jesus has never done government that easily. Uh, So we're just going to try to be a new government right here in this congregation to be God's new people here and show Ireland something that Ireland can never be without Christ. But 
what am I doing giving you advice? Lord, I'm from North Carolina. <laughs> no, that's, that's good advice. Thank you for that. It's good advice to the Church Universal. Um, just So I'd love to speak with you again about a few other works in the future. But yeah. uh, is there anything else that you're working on at the moment or that you still feel passionate to get involved with that you'd like to tell us about? Uh, I'm working on surviving COVID. Uh, I'm, in, I'm in a vulnerable cohort. You can look at me and tell. Um, and, uh, you know, being like near you could be toxic to someone my age, because uh, I'm sure, you know, you're out in bars every night. Um, <laughs> but no, I'm, I've enjoyed my teaching this fall, particularly, I've been online, uh, and I'm working on a, I'm working on a Christian lexicon, uh, a, a Christian ABC, I've been working on that, but uh, we'd love to talk to you about some of these projects in the future. Mark, it's always fun. Yeah, thank you very much, Will. God bless you. Uh, and blessings upon you. And uh, uh, have a wonderful Feast of the Nativity. <laughs>